We are starting a new series this morning on the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin by reading for you from my great big pastor Bible. Um, <laughs> actually, just the print this big. Uh, from John chapter 1, verse 1. If you typically bring your Bibles or your iDevice or whatever you read on, you might want to just mark John because we're going to be there for a while. We'll uh, talk more about that. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us, your word for us. Father, I know that uh, for many of us, life is busy, a lot of stuff going on, and we got to-do lists and problems to solve and things to do this afternoon and things to think about tomorrow. But there really is only one thing right now that um, rises above everything else and de deserves our, our absolute attention. And that is uh, your son, Jesus Christ. And to pray for us right now that we can focus on your word, that uh, we will hear from you because we need to. And I pray that you would do for us today what I cannot do, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and bring your word alive to us. And so we pray for this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, uh, this week I was looking through um, a, a study that had just come out a couple weeks ago. Um, and they put it into infographic form, which I cannot uh, resist. And it's about uh, polarization in uh, the world today. Actually, they did a survey of uh, 28 countries. And they asked the citizens of these countries to react to the two following statements. I realize you probably can't see that, but I'll, I'll tell you. They, they were asked to respond to two um, statements. The first one is, my country is very or extremely divided. So people were asked that question and then they were asked to respond. And the second statement was, I do not feel these divisions can be overcome. And citizens responded to that. And then they, they put all that together on a really cool chart to kind of show you how some of these countries compare. So what they found was some of the less polarized countries are countries like China, um, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> India. Right, so it's a, kind of an interesting thing. So if I was having a talk afterwards with a guy who travels all around the world for a living and he was like, yeah, you know, most of the time in uh, dictatorships, there's really no questions to ask. We just all settle in and, and uh, get on board with the leader. And you see this in some of these countries. So how fair that is, I don't know. But then, but they said just generally, these are not polarized countries. And then you get into some of the moderately polarized countries like Australia and Canada, you know, those Canadians, their stories all worked up about everything, and Kenya and Thailand and Nigeria, and then you get into like uh, what they call the at-risk countries. There's a lot of polarization going on there. So you have like Italy and Japan and Mexico and France and South Korea and you know Brazil, and then you get into the severely polarized countries. Um, Argentina, by and far, is the most polarized country in the world that uh, they used uh, in this survey. And then comes Col Colombia. Oh, my watch is trying to chime in there. Then comes Colombia, and then the United States. So we're in third place, if it's a competition, 
kind of, uh, but at least we'd be on the Olympic stand, right? We get the bronze medal. Behind Colombia, can I just say this? Do you know anything about Colombia? We're, we're just behind Colombia in our polarization. And you know, when I saw, I, honestly, when I saw that, I, it wasn't that I was surprised. I wasn't actually that surprised. Um, but what really concerns me is not so much the polarization of our, of our country, because, right, we just, we know that. We know that that's there. It's uh, how that polarization has made its way into the church. Really, I mean, it's, it's, it's how polarization has made its way into the hearts of believers and how polarized we are as, as a body, as, as a family. And um, I know I've talked about this before, but as a pastor and as someone who uh, leads pastors, I just have these continual conversations with people who tell me there's so much division in my church, people say. And, in, and it's not even over doctrine. It's not like there's division over like the deity of Christ or, um, you know, the inerrancy of scripture. It's over things like masks. People are still divided over masks. They're still fighting over masks. People are still not talking in the church over masks and over vaccines and over mandates and over things like politics. And I know even as I say this, I know that there's gonna be some people in our church who go, I know that's crazy, right? That we would argue over that. And some people are gonna be like, well, of course we'd argue over that. Of course we'd divide over that. I, that's the problem. And even race issues and economics and education and how I'm, I'm so concerned about the, the ramifications of the polarization that has made its way in. Again, I, I expect this in the world. I expect this in our culture. I do not expect this in the church. It does not belong in the church. It just shows that we have drifted from what is most important. We have drifted and we've lost sight of it. Okay, I'm preaching now. So, um, and this is what I want to, so I was thinking a, a couple months ago, like what are we gonna do next in our church in terms of a teaching series? And I had a couple things kind of in the, in the queue. But in the end, I decided we'd do the Gospel of John. John just feels like the absolute perfect place for us to be because John is just like laser focused on the most important thing for you and me. And that is the person of Jesus Christ and the Gospel that he delivered. So today my job is to kind of launch us into a, an introduction to John. And I'm actually going to do a little bit of an introduction and launch us into the first five verses. But I want to give us a little bearing on John. Some of you know probably a lot about the gospel. Some of you don't. So I'm going to get us all on equal footing here. Whenever I start a new series in a book, I always like to go to the periodic chart of the Bible because it's super nerdy. I just love it. And I've shown it to you before. It's so great. So it'll have like, this is so great, the, the, the abbreviation of a book and, and who wrote it and um, how many chapters and how many verses and roughly when it was written. It's just so amazing. And so um, you probably know there's 66 books in the Bible and you can kind of break that down. We got 39 books in the Old Testament and we spent some time in the Old Testament the last few years 
And then you have the New Testament. You have 27 books broken down into several sections. We have Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now here you'll notice that Acts is kind of all on its lonesome, and that's because Acts was originally uh, one book with Luke. It was all just one book, and then um, church fathers broke it up because it was so ginormously big, and no one could read it, so they broke it into two books. But now Acts is just kind of hanging out there by itself. And then we have Paul's letters to churches and individuals. We have general letters written by people like James and Peter, and John, and then we have the book of Revelation. But we are going to be in the Gospels. And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is uh, 21 chapters, 879 verses, uh, the last of the Gospel books written, written by a guy named John. John the disciple, John the apostle, John who never actually names himself in the book, but calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And the focus of each one of these Gospels is a little bit different in terms of the audience they're addressing. And you've probably heard this before. Matthew is primarily focused towards Jews who uh, are, you know, looking for the Jewish Messiah, the promised one. Uh, Mark is uh, generally written to uh, Roman citizens and he talks about Jesus as the suffering son of God who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. Luke is primarily written to Greeks, um, and Jesus is uh, presented as the savior of all people. But it's been noted that John is different because it really isn't focused on a demographic, it's just focused on theology, meaning who Jesus is. And right from the start, just launches right into Jesus and, and who he is. Now, we often refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels and then John's often called like the fourth gospel out there all on his own. So I've got it in your notes but synopsis is a Greek word that means to see all together. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic because they tell many of the same stories in generally the same order, uh, same sequence, and even ha often have a lot of the same wording in those Gospels. And then you come to John. And John's content is largely distinct or unique from the rest of the Gospels. John has no genealogy. Um, John has no account of Jesus' birth. There's no angel announcements to Mary or Joseph or Elizabeth or Zechariah or the shepherds. John's gospel begins with Jesus as an adult already launching into ministry. There are no parables in the gospel of John. There are a few, fewer miracles in John than the other gospels, but they tend to be big ones. Water into wine, uh, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, uh, the healing of the man born blind, a raising of Lazarus from the dead only appears in John's gospel. And there's a lot of unique material. The encounter with Nicodemus is only in John. Uh, the encounter of Jesus and the woman at the well is only in John. The washing of the disciples' feet, uh, the seven I am statements, uh, the extensive teaching of the disciples, uh, of Jesus and the disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is only there in John. Jesus' uh, extended discussion with Pilate in chapter 18 and 19, his discussion with Mary Magdalene and Thomas in chapter 20, his discussion with Peter in chapter 21, all of that is unique to the Gospel of John. Uh, Augustine said this, and I love this quote. Um, he says, The Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And I love that quote because a lot of times when someone maybe is a new Christian or they're going to read the Bible for the first time and they'll ask me, what's a good book to read? 
you know, often we'll say, yeah, you should read the Gospel of John. Because John is just, uh, on the surface, very accessible right from the get-go. On the other hand, you can read John again and again and again, and there's more and there's more, and it gets deeper and deeper. I have a stack of commentaries in my office that are nearly incomprehensible. They're written just by brainiacs getting into the deep, deep weeds of John. And so there's so much there for us. Now today, I want to just kind of get us started by talking about the prologue and actually just the first part of the prologue. So in your notes, we've noted the prologue of John. There's a prologue in John that goes just really the first 18 verses of John. Um, some think that it's a poem. It might be. I'm not 100% sure about that, but it's, a, it's definitely a prologue. Now, a prologue was a common feature back in that day uh, of ancient writings and Greek plays. So it would often serve uh, as a way to introduce the main character of a book or the main character of a play, and it would make the reader aware of maybe some of the background issues that are going to come into play, both seen and unseen, that are surrounding the subject's life. It would be like if you were watching a movie today, and as the movie was beginning, you know, there was kind of a flyover and a voiceover, and Morgan Freeman would tell you a little bit about the beginning of the movie, right? That's kind of what a prologue is, just kind of giving you a big picture of what's to come. John's prologue is 18 verses. And in those 18 verses, we are introduced to the main character of this gospel, and that is Christ. We're also going to be introduced to some of the major themes that we're going to follow throughout the book. Um, the Word, the Incarnation, Christ as Eternal God, Christ as Creator, Christ as Life and Light, uh, the conflict that's to come in the book, how to become children of God, God, uh, the grace of God, all of this we get in not just the first 18 verses, but almost all of it in the first five verses. They're, they're quite loaded. And the opening of John kind of sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? When I was reading it this morning, sounds a little bit like the very beginning of the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we come to John 1, 1, it kind of echoes that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we might say that Genesis introduces the story of the first or the old creation, and John introduces the story of the second or the new creation. And in the first five verses, there is a concept that pretty much is what we hang everything in those verses on, and that is um, the term word. It gets confusing to say it's about the word word, it's word uh, of the word. So uh, I'm going to talk about the term the word. What is the word? And what I find is a lot of times when people read the first couple of verses of John, they just walk away going, I'm so confused about this word thing and what is it? And so we're going to try to break that down and explain it today. So think about when you meet someone for the first time. What do you usually talk about if you want to get to know them, right? You ask questions like, what's your name? And, and where are you from? And, and what do you do? And do you like cats? I always ask that. It's kind of a good starting point to know if we're going to be friends or not, right? And so in John's prologue, he begins to tell us um, all these answers, like, who is Jesus? And, and where is Jesus from? So John chapter 1, verse 1, he kind of, he dives right in. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this term, Word, it appears four times in the first 14 verses, three of them in verse 1, and then the last time in verse 14. 
Now, it's the word logos in the Greek. I have it in your notes. Logos is the Greek word, and it simply means, at its most basic, something said. A, a word that is spoken. Um, some kind of communication that comes to us. Or it could eat, the Greeks even thought of it as reasoning uh, between two people. But basically, it's, it's communication. So when he talks about the word, in the beginning was the word, he's talking about communication. Now, logos was a commonly used Greek word amongst philosophers of the day. And they would sit around all afternoon and, and uh, you know, pet their cats and talk about Greek philosophy. That's what they did. And, and so I've, what I've done is I've given you a, a couple of definitions of logos according to some of the Greek philosophers of that day. You'll find them extremely helpful. Um, logos was the impersonal abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. Here's another one. It's a self-subsistent principle or being that undergirds everything. And if those aren't clear, the last one's really clear. The first ontologically necessary emanation of the absolute primary principle of all things. So basically, the logos or the word is simply um, the, the source or the origin um, of, of maybe the universe or matter or life or thought. But for a Jew of that day, when they would hear the term logos, um, they would think of something very specific. They would be thinking of uh, God's powerful words that he would speak. They would automatically think of Genesis 1-1. They would automatically think of creation. Um, they would think of the fact that God spoke and the universe was created. They would think of when God would maybe speak through a prophet and reveal something about himself. That was, that was logos. When he would decree something, that was logos. Uh, when he would talk about salvation, that was logos. That was God communicating. One writer translates John 1-1 this way. In the beginning was the communication. That's really what's going on here. In Genesis 1-3, again, notice it says, And God said... There's logos right there. And God said, what did he say? Let there be light, and there was light. And so the Jewish mind would understand, God, when God speaks, um, it's powerful, and it accomplishes whatever it is that it says. So here it says God spoke, and there was light. God spoke, and the universe was created. God spoke, and, and humanity was born, and, and, and you were created. God spoke, and he would reveal things about himself. How else could we know about God? God spoke to prophets and God spoke to men like Abraham and Moses. He spoke in the Old Testament and people were rescued. He spoke and judgments were made and, and that was it. He spoke and people were resurrected from the dead and storms were, were calmed and his, his will was done. In John's prologue, then Jesus is called the Word, which is really an intriguing thought. And in John 1.14, he explains clearly that he's talking about Christ. He says, and the word became flesh and, and dwelt, tented, tabernacled his word among us. And so Jesus is God's ultimate, think of it this way, it's God's ultimate communication to us. God's ultimate word to us. The ultimate revelation of himself. In Hebrews 1, it, it tells us this. It says, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke, there's that idea, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to Moses, and by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken, he has logos, if you will, to us. He's communicated to us by his son. And so John is going to use the word logos as, a, as kind of a placeholder. And he's going to use the rest of the gospel to help us understand 
what that means. In fact, it's interesting because after verse 14, he never uses that term again because now he's just explaining it for us. And so John goes on in these first five verses to tell us some things about uh, the logos of God. And he does it really quick, and it's kind of by way of introduction for the rest of the books, book, so we want to do that as well. So a couple things about the, the logos, the word. The first is this, that the word, he says, is eternal. He says a lot to us in the first verse. In John 1, 1, at the beginning of the verse, it says, now, in the beginning was... So really key there. In the beginning was the word. So beginning there is the Greek word RK, which means first or source or origin or that which causes something. And so when you combine this all together, what he's saying is that in the beginning of history or at the root of the universe or creation was the word. And by the way, the word was is the word emi uh, in the Greek, which is an imperfect verb. And this is really important because it's a continuous tense, which means that it's something that's continuing. So we would paraphrase it this way. When the universe began, he already was and was continuing. This is very important. What he's saying is that the word or Jesus did not begin to exist at the creation of the universe or uh, when he was even born on this earth. Jesus, he says, is pre-existent. He already, as one writer said, was wasing when the universe came into creation. He has no origin. He has no beginning. I always find thinking about the eternality of God as such a, a difficult, like it's not hard for me to think of something as being eternal going forward. Right, because I always think of things unfolding. So it's, we're going forward and things are happening. And, but to think of something as being eternal backwards and having no beginning is hard because I just want to go back, but there's no end to going back, right? And that's where I, I get a headache and my brain starts melting down. And to think of Christ or something as having no beginning. Of course, something has to have no beginning, right? Something has to be have been, always been, was, wasing, if you will, for all of eternity. John says, well, that's easy. It was Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternal. The second thing he says is this. He talks about the word in relation to God. So he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So with there with is an important word. Pros is the Greek word. And it has the idea, sometimes it's translated as toward. And sometimes it's even used uh, as face to face. So literally what he's saying here is the word was, uh, wasing, or the word was continuing eternally toward or face to face with God. Right, I told you, this could get really complicated if we wanted. Now again, when it says the word was with, the, the tense again there is continuing. So what he's saying is that this relationship was before the beginning, that this relationship he's describing is eternal. It never had a beginning nor an end. So now notice here that the word is distinguished from God and that the word is with God. So what he's describing here is beginning to describe the first two persons of the Trinity. He's talking about God the Father and that he was with or face to face with um, the Son. And what it implies is two personal 
beings here in an eternal relationship with each other. It implies, as we'll see as we go through the gospel, uh, intimate fellowship, uh, teamwork, discourse, this eternal bond that exists between them. So this is a description of the first two persons of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit will be added quite quickly. He's talking about the Father and the Word or the Father and Jesus the Son. And his point is this, that God has always existed, and this is huge, God has always existed in fellowship. God has always existed eternally in fellowship. God has never been alone. God didn't create you and me because he, he was just up in heaven and he was so lonely and he was so needy and he needed someone to affirm him that he just created us because that would all work out wonderfully, swimmingly well, right? No, what it says is that God has always existed in fellowship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see that a lot more as we go through this gospel, the Holy Trinity. Now, as an aside, let me just mention this. That John is going to make this abundantly clear. That this eternal relationship that exists with God is something that must be reflected in anyone who knows God. Absolutely fundamentally part of what it means to know God that we would reflect this aspect of God. In fact, in chapter 13 and in chapter 17, John's going to explain this in detail, that anyone who knows God must live in fellowship with one another. It's not optional. It's an absolute essential part. And so sometimes when people are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not part of the church and you know like that's a bad thing and I don't you know just do my own thing that's a problem because you won't find that anywhere in scripture what you will find is that we are to reflect this very essence and nature of God that we would reflect the the fellowship of God by our fellowship with one another Uh, but let's move on here he goes on to say a third thing that the word is God so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and now he says something that seems kind of contradictory, and the word was God. Now, it's been noted when you look at this in the Greek that there's no article before God. So, it doesn't say in the Greek the word was a God, because that would be uh, heretical. Jesus is not a one of many gods, because there is only one God. Are you with me? (laughs) And, And it would be inappropriate if it said, and he was the God. Because he is not the God, he's part of the Godhead. So people wrangle and wrestle with this, but I love what John's doing. John's just very careful, very precise in what he says. So when you read it, you're like, wait a minute. How can in the beginning was the word and the word, how is the word with God and the word God? And John's like, bingo, right? He's like, yes, this is, he's just simply stating, in fact, when you read it in the Greek, the emphasis is like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God is the word that John wants you to see and to, and, and to think on. Edward Clink in his extremely uh, nerdy commentary on John says this. This will clear up everything for you. The word shares the essence of the father Though the Word is not the person of the Father, the Word is God, but is not the Father. The remainder of the Gospels needed to qualify the nature of this relationship. And notice this, that this is his continuing identity throughout eternity. Now, John intends that the entire Gospel be read in light of this concept. 
that Jesus is with God and is God. That the actions and words of Jesus are the actions and words of God. In verse two, he goes on to say this. He was in the beginning with God. John is just, I I love how in the second verse of the book, he's repeating, he's already repeating the first two phrases of the first verse. Why is he repeating so quickly? Because I think John knows that if you sat down and really read this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that you would, you know, probably like get a headache over this. Like how does this work? And John knows this. John's like, if you're tracking with me, this is going to be hard. So I'm just going to slow down for a minute and I'm just going to repeat what I've already said because yes, it's very, very deep. He goes on to say a fourth thing though. He says, the word is the creator of all things. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So John is telling us in really quick fashion that Jesus is the member of the Trinity who created all things, which explains why as we go through the gospel of John, we'll see Jesus exercise control over creation. He can do it because he made it. He can do it because he knows it. He can do it because in fact he holds all of it together. It's interesting if you read this verse, again, it's very repetitive. He says something in a positive way and then a negative way. The positive way, right? All things were made through him. It's a positive statement. Now he basically says the same thing again, doesn't he? Just in a negative way. And without him was not anything made that was made. Again, I love how slow John's just like, stay with me now. All right, so he made everything and nothing has been made by anyone or anything else. And nothing has made itself. In Colossians, which we were in recently, it gives us this idea in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, not just the stuff on the earth and the universe. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's talking about the invisible powers and, and beings. And all things were created through him and, and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So not only did he create everything, but he is holding all things together. Hebrews tells us the same thing. But in these last days, God has spoken. There's that idea. God has spoken to us in these last days. How has he spoken to us? By his son. The the word, the, the communication of God. By whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And again, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created and he holds it all together. In Revelation, we have this, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And here we go, and by your will, they existed and were created. And so Lagos, that is Jesus, is the creator of all things. And we could say this, that the creator of all things must itself be uncreated, or what philosophers would call the uncaused cause, and is therefore eternal. No beginning and no end. Again, you know, you can get into all sorts of arguments with people about, oh, the idea of something being eternal, but really, no matter where you land on religion or philosophy, we'd all agree something must be eternal. Something must not have a beginning. So 
atheists and materialists, that is, materialists are people who believe in the philosophy of materialism, which is the only thing that exists is, is that which is material, that there is no immaterial world. And they will tell you, atheists and materialists will say that conscious thought Consciousness is merely the result of this two pounds of gray matter in your skull that's got chemicals washing over it and electrical currents going through it. And what they'll say is that your consciousness is simply that your ability to be here and have consciousness right now, or maybe some of you are nearing unconsciousness at this point in the sermon, but you know, that is just, that is just a mechanical thing happening in your mind. The thoughts you're having at this very moment, I don't know what they would be, but whatever they are, that is purely, that's just chemicals. That's just matter, atoms bouncing around and, and electrons you know, going through your brain. It's not immaterial. They would say there's no soul. You have no soul. You have no spirit. Your consciousness is, is just, right, a physical result of physical matter. There's no immaterial beings. There's no life beyond this life. It's all there is. Josh Moody says this, John claims that the Logos is an immaterial and eternal intelligence and is responsible for human consciousness, rational thought, the laws of science, mathematical structures of reality, blah, 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 that he has created everything that is created. These are difficult things. If you really want to just sit down tonight when it gets dark and go outside and look at the stars and think about eternality and where everything came from, I would highly encourage it, but have some Advil with you when you do it because these are big, big, heady thoughts. And, but John's just like, oh, by the way, <laughs> Jesus is creator. We'll get into more of that in the future. And number five, he says that the word is life and light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He, he made everything, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, John links life and light together here in this text in, it, in a way that they cannot be divided. He says they go together. He says life causes light. Now, there's a big debate. What is John talking about? Is he talking about Physical life and light? Is he talking about spiritual life and light? I would say yes. I think he's talking about all of them. He, he was just talking about the fact that the word has created everything that's created. So clearly he's talking about that which is physical. But he's also clearly talking about that which is spiritual because he's about to launch into, as we'll see next week, more of a discussion about the spiritual nature of this life and this, this light. And by the way, this is one of the things you'll notice. John loves to use uh, words that have more than one meaning and he loves to throw them out and then not tell you what he means by it. And I think he does it on purpose. He wants you to think. He wants you to dig down and to wrestle with this thought. Now, in this gospel, Jesus is referred to both ways. He's referred to as life, as the, as the physical source of life, as has already been mentioned, but also spiritual life. He's mentioned as light. Now, now light actually when we talk about light in humanity, we're talking about consciousness, that he is the giver of consciousness and, uh, and the giver of revelate, the full revelation of God and as, as the incarnation of God. Again, going back to Genesis, in chapter one, verse two, it says, now the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and God said, there's Logos, and God spoke and said, let there be light and there was light because that's what happens when God speaks, when God communicates. In John 1, 5, notice what it says, and the light shines in the darkness 
and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, darkness in the Bible often refers to ignorance and falsehood and, and sin. And then he says this, and the darkness has not overcome it. Catalambano is the Greek word there for overcome, and it's kind of interesting. It means to apprehend, to comprehend, to perceive, or sometimes to overtake by, by violence. So it has some really different meanings. Uh, depending on what Bible you're reading, the ESV uses the word overcome. So in other words, we translate, the darkness did not overpower the light, but there's going to be conflict, which is absolutely true. The New American Standard uh, translates it as comprehend, and the NIV is understood. In other words, they look at it this way, the, the darkness did not recognize the light for what it was. Now, both of those are true in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. He's light. What does light do? Well, it exposes things, right? When you walk in a room and turn light on, you can suddenly see things. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is the light that exposes things, exposes sin. It shines revelation that brings spiritually dark hearts and minds and, into the light of the truth. And as we're going to see, there are going to be people who embrace that light, but other people who don't want that light on. They're living in spiritual darkness, and they resisted the light because they didn't like what they saw when the light was shining. It's kind of like being in bed at night and being comfortable and all the lights are off and someone walks in the room and turns on the light. You just want them to turn that light off. Actually, that happened to us a couple of nights ago. My wife and I, it was 3.30 in the morning, true story, 3.30 in the morning, and uh, my wife's phone rings and it's one of our uh, kids, our son, who says, hey, I'm, I'm at the door, can you let me in? It's what we do when our kids move out. We change the locks. Um, and so he was like, but it's 3.30 in the morning. And I'm like, what in the world? So he comes in the house and he's like, hey, I'm going to catch a flight really quick to Wisconsin because who doesn't want to go to Wisconsin in January? He's like, I'm going to go and visit a friend and I'm heading there right like I'm going. Uh, so I need a suitcase and a, and a jacket. I need to find a jacket. And all I could think the whole time was, that's great, honey. Yes, we can get all that. Is there any way to do all that without turning the lights on? Because it's 3.30 in the morning, right? I don't want the light on. I don't want to be bothered by it. And that's kind of in a spiritual sense what's going on here. Jesus is going to shine a light that some people do not want to see because they don't like how it's going to challenge their way of life. In John 8, 12, it says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we could say this. In the first creation, God spoke into physical darkness and he brought forth light. And at the second creation, God spoke into spiritual darkness and is going to bring spiritual light. Life and light, two concepts that we will see a lot in the Gospel of John. So I want to just close our time with this. What do we do with this, kind of all this information, um, just really quick? Well, I want to close with this. I want to just clarify that God's word to us is Jesus. I want to explain that to you as we wrap this up. Now in the first five verses, John is going to introduce us to some really major themes about the word. But his basic idea is this. Jesus is God's ultimate word, his ultimate communication to you and to me. And he tells us some things really quick, that he is eternal, that he is eternally with God, that he is God, that he's creator, that he's life, that he's light, and that there will be resistance to all of these things, right? We're going to see that unfold in the book. 
But I want you to understand what it means when we talk about Jesus as God's word to us. So imagine that this afternoon, maybe you go to the coffee shop and I go by. So this afternoon I'll start writing the next sermon. So I'll go and get some coffee and then I'll come to my office and start studying. Imagine I run into you at the coffee shop and I come up to you and I say, hey, it's good to see you and I, I have a word for you. What would you think that means, right? You, you, you might think it means, well, I, I have a message for you or I have, you know, something I wanted to tell you or, or, or something, you know, maybe I just want to preach to you because that's what I do, right? So just like, but you're like, well, you have some words. You have some words for me. Now imagine instead of saying I have a word for you, imagine that I said to you, I came up and I said, hey, I am the word for you. What would you think that means? You might think it means I need caffeine and I need it like right away, right? That sounds weird, but what I'd basically be saying is this. It's, it's not so much this, but I, I am the word for you, right? Uh, me. Now, of course, I would never say that to you, but it's what Jesus says to us through John. See, Jesus didn't come to earth with a word for us. He came as the word for us. And those are two, com they're, they're completely different things. He didn't just come with some news, with some information, with some more rules and, and regulations and commandments and teaching. That's not primarily what he did. Jesus came as the word for us. He came as, as divine communication. Not just his words, but his entire life. His entire life was a communication to us. His teaching was a word to us. His conversations are a word to us. His actions our word to us, his reactions, his priorities, the things he said, the things he did, the things he didn't do are God's word to us. His commands, the things he loved, the things he hated, his death, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, all of this is God's word to us. Jesus is not a word to us, he is the word to us. Now let me tell you why those are two different things and, and how that can really mess up our lives. I would suggest that we tend to approach the Bible and Jesus as a word to us, right? So he, have you ever done this? You open up your Bible in the morning, you do your devotions, and you say, God, what is your, what's your word for me today? Right? Or, or you come to here, maybe you came, you're coming to church today, and you're like, okay, God, what's your, what's your word for me today? I hope Pastor Bob's got some kind of good word, and it's not just all nerdy theology stuff, like something real for me. Uh, it's how you end up doing your devotions and saying, God, what's a, do you have a word for me today? In the sermon, in a devotion, in whatever it is. And that's how we end up, uh, for instance, with sermons that are like, you know, three principles for better relationships. So don't get me wrong. I mean, I think better relationships are really good. But that basically, what's that reflect? I'm looking for a word, not the word. Right? That's what you end up with. How, how to, and so you have churches full of sermons on how to have less stress. You know, how to stop being a jerk. That would actually be a good sermon. Um, how to achieve your dreams. How, how to come up with a life goal and then get God to get on board with your goal, right? Uh, how to get uh, a date. How to get a second date. How to get a job. How to get a better job. How to get this and this and this and this. God, what's your word for me today? And this is what it, Christianity just ends up becoming this thing where I approach God for what's the thing that you have for me today? See, God's word for us today and every day is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a person. And if you approach the Bible looking for a word, you'll probably miss the word. You'll probably miss the 
point because you start to think the point is you. Instead of the point is Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in John 5, 39. He tells the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, because you think they give you better relationships, because they, you, know, you think they get you a raise or how to less stress or more peace or whatever it is. But the scriptures point to me. Jesus says, I'm the word. I am the point. That's what this is all about. That's the focus that John wants to bring to your life and your heart and your thoughts and to our church. I remember back when I was in college and there was this, this girl at school that I was just really enamored with. I mean, I really wanted to get to know her. And I, we, I didn't really know her. We had mutual friends. And so sometimes, you know, if you've ever been there, like her, our friends would be talking and she'd be there and I'd be there and I'd be really nervous. And I was just really nervous around her. And I wanted to ask her out on a date. And in fact, she'll tell you this. When I finally did ask her out on a date, I was so nervous and so you know, she, she actually walked away and she didn't know whether I'd asked her on a date or not. She didn't know. She had to go ask her friends who were friends with me, like, did he ask me on a date? And I, I was just really nervous about her, but I wanted to get to know her. And so I said, hey, let's go out on a date. And why don't we do this? I'm going to write 10 questions and you're going to write 10 questions and that's going to be our date. We're going to just ask each other questions because I wanted to get to know her. So I asked her questions like, you know, tell me where you're from. Because uh, I was from California. She was from like Portland. I, Portland was weird as far as I knew. I'm like, tell me about Portland and, and, and tell me about your family. I'd like to get to know your family and your, you know what, music and music and food. What are your hopes for the future? Tell me about how you came to know Christ. And, and I wanted to get to know her. John says that's what we're doing here. This is all about getting to know Jesus because there's nothing more important, nothing more important than getting to know the person of Christ. Not just about him, but to know him because he is God's word to us. So that is my goal for us this year. This year is to get to know Jesus better and on a deeper level and to love him more than we ever have before. And I say for this year, because it's good. So this series is going to go on as far as I can tell. I've kind of laid it out. We'll be done. Well, in fact, I'll tell you this. Um, the resurrection passage is going to come up uh, on Easter of 2024. Uh, we'll be on, and so we're going to go about 16, we're going to go about 16 months, all right? So I want to ask you this question. Who do you want to be 16 months from now? Who do you want to be? Because 16 months goes by really fast, right? Who do you want to be? I'm not asking where do you want to be and what kind of job do you want to have and no, who do you want to be 16 months from now? What do you want your character to be like 16 months from now? Right? What do you want your relationships to look like because of your character? What do you want your thought life? What do you want your attitude to be like in 16 months? What do you want your priorities to be? And what do you want your impact on the people around you to be like in 16 months? See, God has a word for you. God can get you there. And that word is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I think a great way to just launch into the series would be this. Read the book of John this week. All right, it's not that long, 21 chapters. I've been reading it twice a day. Uh, if I can do it twice a day, you can do it once in a week because I'm, I'm a slow reader. So it's not that long, but here's what I'd encourage you to do. Read 
the gospel, the entire gospel of John this week. It will, as you do it, you will already be looking back on the first five verses and going, oh, there it is, and there it is, and there's that, and there's that. You're going to come back next week all like totally pumped and ready to teach me some things about John. It will be awesome. And we're going to take the next 16 months to go through this book. As God reveals his word to us, I'm telling you what, it's going to be awesome. And I'm really looking forward to it. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for uh, just the first five verses of this book that reveal so much. I mean, on the one hand, we can read it and it's very accessible to us. We can, yes, we can get the idea that Jesus was your communication and that you know, he was he's eternal and he's been with you eternally and, and, and he is God and he is light and life and all of this. We, we can get that and yet we know. There's so, there's so much we can dig into. There's so much that we can learn about this that for us will be life-changing as we get to know your son, the word to us, the word for us, who came for us in our lostness, in our darkness, in our sin, in our inability to help ourselves. Your word came for us to live with us, to live among us, to love us, to go to a cross, to die on that cross for our sin, to, to raise, to rise from the dead for us, to, to appear to many, to ascend to heaven, the word for us, the word to us. Father God, I just pray for us as we read the gospel this week, that you will bring it alive to us. And more than anything else, Father, may we know Jesus Christ. Your word to us, in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.